Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm, you know, kind of proud, I guess. There's a little bit of pride that at some point I got to shed the shell of reality and indulge bigger ideas, even if they never happened or could happen. Jamie Lowe has a different relationship with reality than most of us do. Because a few times in her life, she's been able to leave it behind. She has bipolar disorder, and it can make her an extreme and electric version of herself. And that's exhilarating, but it's also destructive. She takes medication to keep herself in check. But as you'll hear, that has its own consequences. I'm Mary Harris, and this is Only Human, the show from WNYC about the complicated ways our bodies work and about the times they fail us. This all started for Jamie when she was pretty young, 17, and a high school kid in L.A. It feels sudden in retrospect because the diagnosis was such a big thing and it was coupled with a hospitalization. It was her senior year when she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. She thought the hospital was a death camp and that the end of the world was coming. And she thought she was the only one who could stop it. Her doctors gave her a drug to treat her mania. What happened when you started taking lithium? I felt, um, I mean, I started sleeping again. I started eating. I was a little bit more grounded. And I was able to function in a way that I couldn't before. Did that feel good? I mean, nothing felt good because I had just come out of being hospitalized for a month, missing senior year. It's hard to know if lithium is actually, if it dampens my personality or if it normalizes my personality or if it allows me to just sort of be who I am. I don't really know. Lithium has played a big role in Jamie's life. She wrote about it in the New York Times Magazine last summer. She's 39 now, and there's only been one time since that hospitalization in high school when she wasn't taking lithium. It was when she was in her mid-20s. She'd finished college and moved to New York, and she started to get work writing about music. She thought, maybe it's time. Maybe I just don't need lithium anymore. You know, I talked with my psychiatrist, and the thought was that it's possible that I wasn't going to have another manic episode. I think I wanted to know what it was like not to be on lithium, too. I wanted to feel like I could exist without it. And so I thought I would try it, Um, which was, in retrospect, risky. And it didn't necessarily pay off. So what happened? First, it was kind of subtle signs of things. I mean, the thing about bipolar disorder is that when it's really blossoming, it's just a slight hyperbolic version of your normal self. And so all the things I was doing could have been a manic episode, but they also could have been totally par for the course for me because this is who I am and they're all extensions of who I am. So, like, I started doing, like, yoga intensely, and I would stand on my head every morning and light candles. And I pretty much started turning down a lot of job opportunities. I had interviews that I was like, this is not what I want to do. I want to change the world. I I I became, like, a huge crusader for the First Amendment and thought I was going to start a nonprofit organization. So there were a few things that were bigger than 
I was operating before. So when did you know or when did your family or friends know that this wasn't just you? This was something bigger. Well, my apartment burned down. And so part of one of these yoga sessions involving candles, probably, they never actually linked it to the candle, but probably it was the cause. You know, I started out the morning doing that, lighting candles, doing yoga, standing on my head, and went to a job interview, which I promptly rejected, even though I wasn't really even offered it. But I gave the guy, like, some granola and... Hold it, you gave him granola? Yeah, like, out of my pocket, I had some granola that I had made and was like, here you go, Andy, like, I hope you like it. And he was like, "Uh, what is this? (laughs) And I walked home, and there were, like, all these fire engines there, and my apartment was burnt out. At that point, you know, I had been sort of manic, but not really in an identifiable way. But from that point on, it was like my reaction to all of that was extreme. So describe how you reacted. Uh, How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was enamored with this guy who lived downstairs from me, who I had met like months earlier. We became very close very quickly. And I was walking around in kind of burnt clothing, and I instantly bought like $700 worth of squash, which I had delivered to my neighbor's apartment. You know, this was within the first couple days, and then... You actually describe it really well in the New York Times Magazine article. I wonder if you could read just that section. Yeah. So this is actually when I went back to New York. I had gone to L.A., and then... After the apartment burned down, you went back to L.A.? I went to L.A. for, I think, like a week or two weeks, and it was right before Valentine's Day, and I was like, I have to be in New York to see Mike, this person who, like, worked on the floor below. It was kumquat season, and I wanted to be back in New York with Mike, a crush I had met a month earlier. He worked in a startup on the floor below my apartment. In the weeks after the fire, he followed me around with a video camera, mostly because I told him to. A few years ago, he sent me a few scenes on a VHS tape he had stashed away in his parents' lake house. I watched it recently. I looked pretty and young and magnetic and so crazy. My face was less creased with worry and my hair was coiffed in a deep red afro, framing perfectly shaped eyebrows. I was sporting my trademark manic style, about a hundred sparkling necklaces, 14 layers of clothing in every clashing pattern possible, thick makeup, and a pack of Fantasia cigarettes. My voice was hoarse and slow like a 40s-era lounge singer. The next scene on the tape is me showing the camera different album covers and singing songs from each album. I pause it, Sweeney Todd, and say, Oh, this one's about eating people, so that's cool. Mike off-camera peppers me with questions, asking me to hold the albums higher or lower or to the side. The next morning, I set up the camera so the lens's point of view shows what I've made. Kumquat and avocado salad, cubed power bars, and a glass of wine. I videotape Mike waking up. He negotiates for more sleeping time. I clearly hadn't slept at all and was now wearing a silver-flecked red bra and a gold skirt. He finally acknowledges me by eating a power bar. I say Baruch Adonai over the cup of wine, borrowing from the Hebrew prayer, 
I whisper it as if my voice is a direct line to God. Mike asks me what I'm going to do today. Today, I'm going to contact MTV to debate Gore, Bush, or Tipper Gore. I hope it's Tipper. I have a lot of work to do today. Pause. I have to change the world. Is it hard to watch those recordings of yourself? Yes. It was very hard. And I did it once so I could take notes. And I really, I don't think I could watch it a lot. But it also feels, because it's recorded, like it's a different person, even though I remember it happening. It's just kind of like sometimes when I look at pictures of myself, it's like this disembodied experience. And it's kind of like that. So how well do you remember what you're watching? I totally remember it. Um, I remember all of it. The thing about mania and depression is that you're there throughout it. You know, you're interacting with people and you're not not remembering. Does it feel like you? Define you. I mean, in each moment we change and we react differently depending on the circumstances. And I think that it feels like a version of me and it's certainly part of me, but it's not the choices I would make, you know, if I were me on lithium. You're really funny <laughs> when you write about this. Thank you. I am glad <laughs> that that comes off. And it's a tragic scene. Yeah. But it's also funny. I mean, it is. It's so stupid funny. Like, there are things that happen that you're like, what? Like, how is that even real or possible? And that's the beauty of it. There's a lot of bad that goes with being manic or depressed. But then there's some stuff that's really exciting and good and expansive. And I wouldn't change it. So how did you make the decision to go back on lithium? That was not something that I was necessarily agreeable to. <laughs> uh, my mom, she came out, and then while she was here, she was trying to get me back onto lithium, but I was cheeking the medication. and You were like, cheeking it, yeah. like putting it in your cheek and then... Like she would say, like, did you take it? And I would open my mouth, lift up my tongue, but it was actually in my cheek. And so it would look like I took it, and then I would spit it out and not take it. Very crafty. Manic people are very crafty. <laughs> but after a while, she sort of, either I was too proud and told her of my great achievement of cheeking the medication, <laughs> or she figured it out, and uh, then she started checking more crevices in my mouth. <laughs> and so I eventually started taking that and antipsychotics, and I was back in L.A., Writing it out, I mean, it really was, like, not all gone. And I was, you know, taking out all these canvases I had painted and, like, repainting them furiously. And I was still walking around with, you know, just tons of green eyeshadow all over my face. Nobody really could handle me. And so at some point, my mom hired a nurse to help. 
I basically had a babysitter as a 25-year-old, and she would, like, braid my hair into cornrows and take me to 99-cent stores, and she was very calm and patient. And eventually, the medication started working, and then I had to deal with all of the destruction. Coming up, Jamie recovers. But there's just one problem. The drug she relies on to keep her mind stable is making her body sick. Only Human will be back in a minute. weeks ago, we talked to Dr. Peter Grinspoon about his addiction to painkillers. He was a practicing physician when he got caught writing bogus prescriptions to feed his own drug habit. He went to rehab, and his license was suspended for three years. After that, he returned to work as a doctor with supervision. He never went to jail. We heard from a few listeners who thought that he got off pretty easy. You pointed out the stark difference in the way Grinspoon, a white doctor, was treated for his drug crimes compared to African Americans. Jason Minnis, who grew up in Florida and lives in Brooklyn, said Grinspoon's story made him furious about this double standard. But when I listened to that episode, I was like sitting there like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Because my experience and the experience of people in the various African-American communities that I've lived in, from my hometown to West Baltimore to uh, Bed-Stuy East New York, and this guy's experience are completely different because he didn't even lose his medical license. He went to rehab and then like you know he was able to kind of like pull his life together like oh I still practice medicine in an inner city community where in a lot of black communities you get that one strike you can't get a job and you're pretty much your life is ruined. When I spoke to Peter Grinspoon he said the emphasis should be on rehab not punishment. I think it should be less punitive for for everybody. I mean it depends on whether you think of addiction as a disease or some kind of moral failing. And I think there's being like there's a big shift right now in kind of society's perception of addiction, and it's shifting from something that we punish and incarcerate to something that we empathize with and treat. So I think this happening, and I was just trying to make the point that with physicians, it's particularly dangerous if there's a punitive response because they won't get help. And a worst case scenario for patient safety is a physician who is addicted who's afraid to get help. Do you have thoughts on this story? Tell us on Facebook or Twitter. We're at Only Human. You're listening to Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. And I'm talking to Jamie Lowe. She has bipolar disorder, and she had a bad manic episode in her 20s after she stopped taking lithium. By the end of it, she had no apartment and no job. Mike, the guy she thought was her boyfriend, wasn't her boyfriend anymore. She had to start adult life all over again. She decided to stick to a regimen, lithium, three capsules a day. And little by little, she put herself back together. And tell me about your life now. My life is good. We're fostering a dog right now, and that's less good because <laughs> she's crazy. Like, I think that we might have run our course at this point. Although the group sent me another picture of, like, little beagle-looking puppies, and I almost lost it. But but you're working at the Times Magazine? 
Yeah. You have a serious boyfriend. Yeah. You're living together. Yeah. I know that's like a total miracle to me. I can't believe that. <laughs> Why a miracle? I think relationships are hard and I think that they're they're really hard to get right. And when it feels right and it's working and continues to work, I think that's miraculous. I think that's one of the few things that I can point to as inexplicable and amazing. So at one point, did you tell him about the bipolar disorder? Probably the first time I met him. I'm not shy about talking about it. And the first time we met, we had a really long, like, five-hour conversation. And... I felt very comfortable with him, and so we talked about a lot of things, and that was one of them. So Jamie has things worked out, a relationship, a job. But lately she's been thinking a lot about that last manic episode when she was in her 20s. Pretty soon she has to stop taking lithium again. She found out after a visit to her doctor. I had gone to him because I thought I had a rash, and he basically was like, I don't care about your rash. I care about the fact that you're going to just explode right here. <laughs> like, he was very worried. Her blood pressure was dangerously high. The doctor sent her to the emergency room, where tests showed that her kidneys were damaged. Jamie knew this was a danger of long-term lithium use. For years, she'd had regular tests to monitor her kidney function. But she didn't expect this. So who was the first person who said to you, you know, we may need to talk about the lithium? It was the same primary physician actually referred me to a nephrologist in his practice. That's a kidney specialist. And this nephrologist said, you have to go off lithium. And I was taken aback and just felt like she didn't quite know what she was talking about. So I talked with my psychiatrist, who then found a nephrologist who specialized in these cases. And I went to her, and she said, you know, you have these two choices. You can stay on lithium and you will get dialysis and a transplant, or you switch now to a different medication. What were you feeling in that moment? Bad. I mean, really bad. It's a terrible choice. I don't want to have to face an episode, which would be the possibility of switching medication. You know, if it doesn't work, the only way to know that it doesn't work is if I have an episode. And dialysis is horrifying to me. Like, it works for people who absolutely need it, and it's deeply important. But sitting and getting my blood cleansed for three hours every other day and then having to have a major organ transplant, this is not, not really good choices. How do you deal with knowing this is coming? Keep on trucking. I mean, what do you do? I I just, I like work. I like my boyfriend. I like dogs. I just focus on all those things. <laughs> really, in the scheme of things, it's not the end of the world. Like, I have this incredible support system. I have, with this article, recently announced to the entire world that I'm going to be going off my medication and to watch out for me, and people have been really kind about it. <laughs> I'm really optimistic that it's going to be okay, only because I don't know what else to be doing. You mentioned your boyfriend, though. Do you guys have a plan? The nephrologist that I've been seeing, Dr. DeVita, who I love and is great, suggested one thing would be to give 
my boyfriend my credit card since one of the symptoms is spending a lot. And I was like over my dead body. That is not ever going to happen. I'm not giving up financial control. I feel like that's years and years of feminism down the toilet. But he's never seen you like this. So I guess I wonder, what do you tell him about like, hey, honey, uh, if I do this, maybe call my psychiatrist? That's a really tough thing to prepare someone for because you can't. And that's definitely the hardest part of all of this is that I do not want to go through another episode. My family doesn't want to go through another episode. My friends don't want to. But I know how to, and I know that I can. I don't know that about him. Like, I think that I think he will be like a solid foundation. But it's a lot to expect of someone. And I am worried about it. Not long ago, Jamie started taking a new drug that her psychiatrist thought could work for her. But it slowed her down, made her anxious, and she had to stop taking it. So for now, she's still on lithium. She'll try easing off again this month. We'll keep checking in with Jamie. And when she wants to come back on the show, we'll have her. Have you had to make a tough decision about a medication or a mental health issue? Tell us about it. Leave a comment on this episode at onlyhuman.org or write to us on our Facebook page. We're at Only Human Podcast. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced and edited by Molly Messick with help from Amanda Aronchik. Our team includes Elaine Chen, Paige Cowett, Julia Longoria, Kenny Malone, Fred Mogul, and Ankita Rao. Our executive producer is Lital Mulad. Special thanks to Megan Kunane and Eleni Murphy. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Charina Endowment Fund, the Hearst Foundations, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.